So when we don't have a Good Friday gathering um, and we launch into the sort of Easter celebration, it's almost like we're missing a piece of a pretty important puzzle. There's a piece that we have to kind of, we need as context to uh, fully embrace sort of what we're celebrating on Easter morning. And so I'd ask you this morning to think of the part of the crucifixion story that you find the most poignant, the part that really lands for you or that grips you or grabs you. Love for you to take a moment and uh, as I'm reading this, to, to pick it out, to say that for me is where the story really ramps up. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
And what's interesting is when Jesus says those words, the first words he's saying in his native tongue, and then the last word he's saying in the, in the derivative of his language that's the same subacony as is written in the Psalms. And so what's interesting as I learned about this is that in, in uh, Jesus' time, there weren't numbers attached to all the Psalms. The way that you referenced one was you said the first line. And so when you'd say the first line of the psalm, it would bring to mind kind of the whole meaning and the, the gist of that whole package of thought. And in particular, there's, there's some psalms that were called lament psalms. And this is one. What's, what's helpful for me is 22, 44, 88. They're all lament psalms. Like, can we get a 160 or 172? If you double them, you can remember them. But there's way more than just those three. And they're a motif in the Psalms that were sort of an invitation to wander through grief and anguish, the deepest of hardest human emotions, in a well-trodden path. And so it was sort of like, um, it was a gift. It was, it was a way that someone could enter the feeling that they're feeling. It's like a pre-written prayer where you could enter into this, this well-trodden path that would help you not only express the anguish of your emotion, but that would connect it in a container that includes God in your wrestling with it. And so we see that a little bit in the beginning. They typically start off with this cry out to God, accompanied with a complaint. And so none of us have probably ever felt like complaining with God. Yeah, right. But, but the thought is, and, and in the Jewish tradition, these songs of, songs of lament were, were places people could go in God's word to find these expressions of anguish that they could sort of sub in to their own experience. Listen to this. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out to you day by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You're the one Israel praises. In you our ancestors put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were saved. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But, despite all that, I'm a worm. I'm not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. And you can see how this is, this is grabbing on to some of the things that a person being crucified unjustly might be feeling in his humanity. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in and so when we hear Jesus reference Psalm 22 by saying the first line of the psalm, we hear him expressing something that's a complete sort of uh, from complaint to refrain that Psalm 22 gives us. And what's typical of these songs of lament is they start with this complaint, but they're including God in the complaint. And so they're taking resentment and pain and hurt and sorrow and teaching us, instructing us, mentoring us on how to make that a spiritual exercise of handing that back to God. And Jesus is almost, 
embodying a message in, in saying those words, he's inviting people to experience this song, if they're aware of it, while he's experiencing the realities of it. And this is where it gets, gets crazy for me, is that, yes, going to a song, psalm of lament in moments of anguish is a helpful way to include God in those moments. But when Jesus does it, this psalm that's written over a thousand years prior to this moment, there are pieces in the psalm packed with prophetic meaning. Let's go to the next slide. Listen to the things that he's referencing while he's on the cross with this first phrase. My mouth is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Maybe we should offer him a sponge. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. Ringing any bells? All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. Can you believe that this is in the Psalms? That his cry of dereliction is saying, I'm experiencing this, not just metaphorically, this is the fulfillment of the thing that has been coming. And it's all happening before you. Let's go to the next part. There comes in these psalms of lament always a kind of a turning point where it's like, despite my complaint, despite my resentment, despite the anguish and the hurt and the pain that I'm wrestling with, you, Lord, don't be far from me. You're my strength. Come quickly to help me. And I like to wonder, and I'm not saying this is for certain, but that Jesus might be tracking ahead in that psalm for strength in that moment of saying, don't be far from me. You're my strength. Help me in this moment. Let's go to the next part. Because inevitably, in all the songs of lament, and I'm not reading the whole thing here, it comes to a point where there's a turn. And there's a, sort of an instruction to say, despite how I'm feeling in this moment, there's an aspect of faith and trust and belief that's promising something later. So 27 is where it really ramps up. Uh, the psalmist writes, All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will bow down before Him. For dominion belongs to the Lord, and He rules over the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All those who go down to the dust will kneel before him. Those who can't keep themselves alive. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. We just see this prophetic truth being witnessed in the words that open the song that come from Jesus' mouth on the cross. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it. Isn't it um, mind-boggling that that's there? Sorry, I'm fired up about it. <laughs> We're still taking it in. <laughs> <laughs> like, that's pretty 
happening in that song? I don't know how you'd express being fired up about it, but I am. So let's leave that for a moment and think about the day that we're in. So uh, a few weeks ago, I was chatting with some other pastors, and we were talking about the last couple of years we've had. It's something people like to talk about these days, I'm finding. Anybody notice that? But we were talking about how folks are doing and how we are doing. And one of the guys uh, described um, just kind of going through the motions and going to this thing. And at this thing, some guy was talking about resentment and uh, talking about how over the last two years, it seems like everybody has picked up some resentment that it's like piled into our communities and into our homes and into our families and our marriages, whether it's based on disunity around political views or views on vaccines or views on the legitimacy of somebody's opinion or whatever, that there is this temptation to resentment. And resentment is a very powerful and dark and twisted and gripping thing, isn't it? I certainly have felt that. I've felt some pretty big resentment for things that um, I had expected would be things my kids got to experience at the age they were at that, that felt like were taken from me or taken from them. I felt resentment for things that I had hoped for uh, personally or that I had expected or relationships that got really complicated instead of being easy like they were before, I resent, resented that. How about you? Has COVID taken things that might have been small cracks and widened them in your experience of life? Today, I want to spend some time talking about how this story, this cross, grave, new life story in particular, it holds an invitation for us to enter a lament song symbolic journey with Jesus. It's like the lament song picked up some pretty poignant symbols that we are invited to experience in Christ. And I want to walk through three movements together. But I start by talking about resentment because I'd love if as I'm talking, I'm under no illusion that you're hanging on every word. But as I'm talking, if you want to allow some of the resentment to kind of come into focus, then there's moments later for you to take beginning steps to address how that can be dealt with in a way that might be really helpful. Sound good? Father, we, uh, we're open to the way that your son represents good news. We never want to be guilty of describing Jesus in a way that isn't good news. And so this morning, as we feel the felt need, not just of folks in this room, but of people all around us, of resentment. And maybe that's not the perfect word for all of us, but I think for many of us. Um, for hurt, for pain, for frustration, or confusion, or anger, and resentment. We invite you to use uh, this morning as a time to give us new handles on it, to give us new insight into ourselves, and help us to see 
that you are not a stranger to the things that cause So, um, there's a story I, uh, I was reading that I just, I, I find that, well, I won't comment on it because it'll ruin the story. And I'm commenting on not commenting. <laughs> I think I'm going to stop commenting. <laughs> I'm in a loop, I can't. Uh, so in his best-selling book, The Telling Room, the author Michael Patroniti shares this true story that he heard uh, when visiting his father's ancestral village in Sicily. Okay, so he says, he goes to Sicily, and he's trying to write his book, and he notices that there's this super old lady who every day is going on this, like, six-hour walk. And he describes her moving at, like, a tortoise pace, and so he's noticed her a couple times now, and he notices that she's always headed in the same direction. It's a small village, and it's the cemetery. And so he starts to think to himself, well, yeah, maybe she's lost a, a dear loved one and, and has like a, a routine of going and paying homage or remembering or honoring the person that she's lost. Or, and, then, and then he says, well, maybe, or maybe it's like the love of her life, like her husband is uh, buried in that cemetery. And, and so he starts to allow his imagination to, to run on what in the world would cause someone to walk six hours at a tortoise pace to the cemetery every single day. And so he asks around, finally, because he's curious. And, and, and he learns that it, it wasn't uh, a loved one. That wasn't the reason that she walked there. Um, the locals described it in Italian as astio which I'm probably saying it wrong. But it translates as bitter hatredness is what takes her there. Her arch enemy is buried in that cemetery, they said. And so rain or shine, the old woman walked up the hill every day to her enemy's gravesite to spit one more time on the grave. Little plot twist there. Resentment is a powerful, powerful thing. And it subtly grabs hold of us. It has tentacles that reach into our lives. And it, and it holds incredible power. Max Lucado describes it this way. He says, resentment is when you let your hurt become hate. When you let your hurt become hate. Resentment is when you allow what is eating you to eat you up. Resentment is when you poke and stoke and feed and fan the fire, stirring the flames and reliving the pain. Resentment is the deliberate decision to nurse the offense. You know, who does that? I do that. Well, she said that to me. I'm not going to let you in my inner world. I think you know where I'm going with that. <laughs> Resentment is a deliberate decision to nurse an offense until it becomes a black, furry, growling grudge. Rob Lowe, uh, who many of you would recognize as a Hollywood actor, he was kind of the, the pretty boy of the 1980s, is how he's described. 
He kind of had it all as far as the world is concerned. Partying uh, like crazy. And he got pretty addicted to some pretty bad habits. And his career hit an all-time low. Uh, and he had to go to rehab for his addictions. And apparently in 2015, there was an interview that he took where they were asking him how he got sober. And he said, well, for someone in recovery like me, the single greatest problem, the number one with a bullet that will make you drink. You want to guess? Rhymes with resentment. <laughs> resentment. You can't have it, he says. Resentment destroys. People always say, how have you been sober for 26 years? His answer, what's the secret? Dealing with my resentment. So today, I want to look at the three movements. The cross. This is our grave. And then communion will be our invitation into walking in new life with Jesus. So let's start with the cross. In the book we're studying behind the scenes as a church, which is called The King Jesus Gospel by Scott McKnight, he has this one page where he says, this is how I like to describe the cross. I describe it as three things, that Jesus dies with us, that Jesus dies instead of us, and that Jesus dies for us. Okay, so let's just, let's just wander through those quickly, shall we? So Jesus dies with us. So when we talk about the Incarnation, we talk about God taking on human flesh, stepping into the world and experiencing it with us, as one of us, just like us, experiencing the things that we experience in our worst moments, and being able to empathize because he's been present to those same human experiences. And what's interesting is that when we know someone has experienced something that we've experienced, it's not patronizing to have them comfort us, is it? It's like, you know what I've gone through, and so you're not going to say the stupid stuff that so many people that don't understand what I've gone through are going to say to me. And so when we see this Jesus who is with us in the sense that he's suffered and he's experienced things, not necessarily in all the exact same ways, but he has experienced the weightedness of unmet expectations or pain that's turned to hurt that's turned into resentment. He's felt those temptations. He knows that humanity. Empathy can be received when it's someone you know understands. Uh, every, every time I take our little guy, Rudy, who is like the empathy um, master, he is, uh, that is one thing that he doesn't lack. He's four, and I take him to preschool, and every time I hear a story, a Rudy story, and like the lady, which I love, but the, the lady's taking care of him, just love watching him in action, because he can't say very many words, but he can sure communicate. And I guess the other day at circle time, just a little proud of my boy, he, uh, they're sitting around the circle, and this girl gets all worked up, like a four-year-old Mike, and goes running off in a fit and is uh, sitting at the table. They're all trying to, to like get her to come back and they're you know, using whatever technique you use as a preschool teacher, like probably, I don't know, dangling cookies and stuff. <laughs> and she's got her head in her hands at the table. She's not happy. <laughs> she hasn't 
resisted Rudy before. So he gets up in his way and walks over and starts petting her hair. And then takes her face, you know, like only he can, and stares at her in the face, then grabs her hand and talks to her.
Uh, thanks, Gene. Come on down. And we told the folks on Zoom we'd use the mic, so here you go. <coughs> Give it up for Gene, folks. <laughs> Things to do today, 
and I wasn't sure if I was, how long I was going to be there with my camera. And so I was kind of in this place of waiting, right? And, and uh, you know, I mean, that's, it's, it's a spiritual discipline, waiting. It was a wait on the Lord or renew their strength. And so, but I didn't have all days. So I was kind of praying. <laughs> talk about burying resentment, any good psychologist or psychoanalyst is going to say that's probably the worst thing you can do, is bury your resentment. And that's where I think this, this kind of takes a turn, is that the, the power is not in the cross or the grave or the empty grave. The power is the person that was on the cross and the person that was in the grave and the person that stepped out of the grave. So there isn't a power in a cross any more than there is in a, a electric chair. But it's that Jesus was on the cross. I guess there is power in the electric chair. <laughs> <laughs> I saw somebody saying it and started to read um, The power is in the person that was on the cross and the person that went through the transformation chamber to new life. 
And so when we die to our resentment, we don't get ourselves up on a cross. We don't bury ourselves and bury our resentments independent of Jesus. The invitation is that Jesus has died with us instead of us and for us. And so the price has been paid for our resentments. And so when we connect our resentments to that, to Jesus, then Jesus takes those resentments and we can bury them in him, okay? In him in the grave. And then the transformation chamber takes place where because we've handed these things out of our hands to God, when God takes them from us, and we experience the empathy of a loving Savior. And we experience the identification that comes from being part of this human story of God restoring His creation. And when we experience the depth of forgiveness and restoration throughout His creation that makes things new again. We are walking the lament song that Jesus gave from Golgotha to resurrection. And so today, to close, we want to embody it a bit. And you probably saw the cross on the way in. Uh, there were a bunch of papers on it. And this is our grave. And then we've got communion uh, as kind of the third expression. And um, the last thing I want is for us to, like, wander out there, grab a paper, throw it in the grave. Yeah, this I want to only be something that you participate in if it's connecting to something that um, maybe needs to be given to Jesus. Not to nail to the cross yourself as if you're the one going on the cross. Jesus is the one on the cross receiving the weight of the things that we carry. And then, you know, you can bury your resentment if you want to suffer. But the invitation is to, is to allow the resentment and the pain and the hurt that you carry to be something that he carries to the grave. Because when he goes to a grave, something happens. But like the 25 minutes that Gene waited for that bee to fly, the time in the grave, the time in the transformation chamber is not something we dictate or can know. It's this time and space, you could call it liminal space, where there's all kinds of expectation that we don't really know how it pans out. We don't get to pick what new life looks like. But we know that new life will be better. So, what I'm thinking as a progression is we walk out that door back there. There's a cross with a whole bunch of white papers on it. You don't have to write anything on them. The point is that you maybe take one as an identification that it's already on there. You, know, you don't have to nail it there, it's already on there. And it's something that's already been represented in what Jesus has done. It's not, I wonder if this would be allowed on the cross. It's already on there, okay? Whatever we're carrying is already on there. And so you grab your, your paper, and I'm hoping that in that moment that you're being real with God. And, you know, if you don't want to be, then just let it be an art project that you walk by. 
but um, the invitation is to say there's stuff that I, uh, I'm worried is hurt that's going to turn into hate. And the invitation of Easter morning and the good news of the gospel story is that Jesus invites us to identify with the three movements. Give me your weight. I will die on your behalf. In the grave, good luck trying to keep me down. And then raise to new life. So you'll end at the table where we are reminded of this, this really vivid picture that goes on um, that takes us back to some of the significant moments of how Jesus was describing to his disciples that this would happen before it did. Communion. And so on the night that he was betrayed, just before all of this took place, you remember they're hanging out in a room together. Jesus has been washing feet, people that definitely don't deserve it, one in particular, but probably all of them, if we're honest. And then he turns to them and he says, object lesson time, guys. See this bread? Think of this bread as my body, broken for you. And whenever you eat it, remember me. You don't have to just remember this moment, but remember the whole story. Remember that your resentment, I want it. I care for you. I understand you. I've experienced it. I entered this space for you. So give it. Give it up. And then let me take it to a place where it's a healthy burial. Let me transform it in the transformation chamber that's going to turn it into something that you might not expect, but it's for sure going to be better than resentment. And then let's step out and live in a new way. And then he took the, uh, the cup as well, and he said, this can represent my blood, the symbol of the new covenant, a new promise that promises you something better than you've been experiencing. Not a, not a way where I control you and try to make you follow all my rules of religion, but a way where you start to see that I'm offering a version of life that's going to bring out the best version of you. One that ditches resentment, that ditches hurt, not in a trivial or contrived way, but in a way that says, I'm going to die to this along with Jesus. I'm going to allow it to go to the grave. And I'm going to expect transformation. And so as we uh, wander through this, we're going to have uh, music playing. But I would love if we could create a space where folks that are, that are um, dealing with things that are difficult could, uh, where we could just be kind of respectful of that. Where we're kind of quiet and saving our catching up with each other for after. I feel like a dad. I have this speech all the time. So we'll just walk out the door, grab a paper, the grave will be there. And the thought is, at the cross, uh, what resentment needs sort of identification? What, what do you need to admit has been bothering you and maybe has tentacles that have grabbed onto you that aren't good? Okay, so that's the moment at the cross. You don't have to rush it, like hang out there if you want. Putting it in the dirt is saying, I don't want to bury this in the way of saying that I never think about it again, but I don't want to carry it any longer. I want to leave it with you, Jesus.
you transform it. It's too heavy, it's too hard for me to do. And then communion is an identification with faith that says, even if I'm not experiencing that new life yet, I trust that when I follow after you, it's coming. That's the 25 minutes of waiting, at least, for how God will show up. All right. So I'm going to pray, and then uh, we're going to have some music, and we'll try this together. Thanks so much, um, and happy Easter to you all. My hope is that you could you could take it, take a moment for yourself here, and a moment with God. And there's folks around that can need to process something um, for us. Father, we thank you. We thank you for this integrated message that starts years before Jesus lands on the earth in human form. And then ramps up in this person who so embodies goodness and godness that we see it all through his life in the way that life just pours out of him. That when he's around people, they can't help but be infused with new life. And then we see that in our broken humanity, uh, we can't handle having someone like Jesus here. It's like he's just too threatening, too good somehow. And so we're conscious of our um, being complicit and being a human race that so often gets But we thank you that in your love and in your grace, you absorb our mistakes, Jesus. And we thank you that you do it from a place of love for us. And we are so grateful for that, God, that you would love us enough to absorb the weight of our hurt and so we pray that as we identify or you help us see the things that are stealing life from us or that are representations of death, not life, show us how in our, in the way we do it physically, how to allow those things to go or at least begin that process. And then we uh, look forward.